Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 47th edition of the PJ Archive. This is a phone interview I did with the great American singer, songwriter, musician and activist Joan Baez. It took place in 2003 when Joan was promoting an album entitled Dark Chords on a Big Guitar. I started by asking her how she felt it compared to her previous work. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I know that it's different. I know that it therefore makes it very interesting to me and apparently to other people. So, And the rest, I, I don't really know. It's, it's In a way, it's something more of a piece than uh, several previous albums. On this album, you perform songs written by many contemporary songwriters. What do you feel about the depth of talent around these days? It's there. Um, I stopped writing songs about ten years ago because I just didn't, as I say in my dotage, want to do anything difficult unless I absolutely had to. So, kind of discovered I really didn't have to. That's how I feel about these songs. What they do is give me some kind of insight into probably all of them are younger than myself, not Mm. all of them drastically younger, but all of them now reflect whatever whatever this world is to them rather than what it was 20 years ago or not to mention 40 years ago. Some of them I don't understand. I just like it. Like um, those wings. I haven't got a clue what that song is about. But there's something in the imagery, and there's something about it that makes it work with the other songs. So it's all a, you know, sort of a big, wonderful world of mystery to me. When you work with these young artists, how often do they sort of tap you for advice and for stories and so on? Stories, yes. Advice I won't give. <laughs> right. Why is that? Well, I mean, I suppose if it were something I really felt that I knew more about than they did. Musically, I don't know if they had asked for advice that much. Mostly, they, well, like the Indigos, we have a, a, rela- a really fun relationship with a lot of teasing because I'm old enough to be their mother. You know, and we sh- were really comfortable in the sharing process on the stage. And then they want, because they're politically inclined to, you know, social political things, yeah. then the stories to them have a certain kind of meaning. Yeah, and there's a lot of, a lot of, well, tell us about X, because <laughs> you know, yeah. for them it's been mythology up until now. Do you have a favorite track on this album, or do they all mean different things? Well, I suppose in the end, if there say one track off of it that I would want to last forever, it's the one track that, that's the least, um, it, it stands out as more me, and that would be Christmas in Washington. That's that because it feels as though that song was written for me. And what are your hopes and aims when you release a new album? Oh, <laughs> that I'm still young enough to get on the bus and go out and sing songs. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous at this point. I've been doing this for, what, 43 years? Why is it ridiculous, though? I mean, you oh, have such a huge following. It's wonderful. Um, and it is, And it is amazing to me. See, the voice goes on, and it wouldn't go on if I didn't work very hard with it. And when I quit singing, it'll be because I'm tired of working. Right. I mean, it's a daily a daily practice. But do you care about the progress of the album, how it does? Oh, 
I mean, I'm not an, I'm not ambitious, but it would it's always nice when when people become aware of some 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 work I've done that I'm proud of, and also. To be honest, it's been the reason I've worked out of pattern and actually have management is that I never knew I needed that until I'd already done 20 years of a career. And then, like everybody in the world, including Elvis, Beatles, and Dylan, there's a certain point of disorientation. And most of those people then pursue their music full bore to, to catch up or whatever they need to do. And I didn't. I was busy running around and doing politics. So when I got the picture, which is now about 13 years ago, mm-hmm. and hired Mark and you know went about it the way a proper entertainer would do, then, yeah, I thought, well, it's, it was kind of a process of getting back on the map. You've long been something of a legend as an artist and as a, as a public figure. To what extent do you feel people depend on you, and how much pressure is that on you? I think that now I've learned a little bit about the fact that that other people need to do a lot of the work that I used to do, Um, and at the same time, I know you said earlier, do they ask, do the songwriters ask me for advice? I mean, there is a part of me that I know will always do what I feel I need to do politically and so on. There was a lull for a number of years, really, that ended with um, with the Bush administration, where it wasn't so urgent. I mean, it didn't feel urgent, even though in places in the world it is urgent. Mm. It didn't feel like the urgency that we had 20, 30 years ago, well, 30 years ago. Um, but now that urgency is back, so what I do now will probably shift again back to, back to more visibility. You talked about your voice earlier. To what extent do you feel your voice and your kind of music and your choice of songs has changed over the years? I would say that when Mark came on board, that what I needed more than anything was to be fresh in in the music I was doing. So in that sense, he was absolutely the right person because freshness is what I've gotten from all of these songwriters. A freshness... I would probably not have gotten from my own writing um, and, unless I spent really an enormous amount of time with it. It's just kind of there. Well, I've always sung, you know, after the first three albums, I've always sung the works of my contemporaries, among other things. Uh, now it's just, you know, part of the fresh um, factor for me is the drummer, the bass player. Right. I had traveled with them, and George DeVore is the drummer. Mm-hmm. He's a huge part of this. But he's not, I mean, you may not even realize this as, as it's going along, how um, important the drumming is in this, drumming and percussion. Why has it been so long since your last album? Well, I think... Um, I have felt that I'm not in any big rush, <laughs> and if it works, you know, if it comes together properly, and it's going to be really worthwhile, <laughs> then we'll do it, and otherwise I wasn't interested in trying to get out product, they say, and this began to unfold itself but a couple of years ago, the process of looking for the songs and looking right. for a direction. 
I don't know about the US, but in the UK for years now, artists over a certain age have struggled to get record deals, let alone airplay. To what extent have you experienced such prejudice, and how do you feel about it? Well, first of all, it's hard to realize, to recognize it, because I don't feel... Uh, it's hard for me to feel that I'm in the category that somebody would be ageist about. But I am. And... Um, and I have to factor that in and say, for instance, they're, you know, one of the major AAA stations in the States refuses almost like on principle to play my music. Well, it's oh. probably age, could be politics. Yeah. Um, I would say happily that with this new CD, that seems to be breaking down considerably. Good. And some quality in this CD that's... Um, made it more available to them. Although you've had your, your fair share of hit singles and albums, you've definitely not depended on them to the extent that most artists have. How, how much of that has been your own choice or just the way things have turned out? Well, I think my choice from very early age was that I wasn't out to make a killing, uh, either commercially or financially. And I've been pretty consistent with that. I was lucky. I mean, at age 18, I had an anti-commercial streak in me mm. that came probably from a Quaker background. And, and I'm glad I did. I mean, I was just as difficult to work with as anybody else in the world because <laughs> I was so fussy about it. I didn't want bright lights. I had to have a black background. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I read something once that said I, that I was impossible <laughs> to work with. I thought I was so simple, you know. Mm. But um, I'm glad that I went that direction mm. rather than, you know, having to have a pink limousine and, <laughs> and a knick-knack in my rider and what have you. How important has the UK been to your career? She's been quite important. And it seems as though with each country I work out a specific um, relationship. And it's been important. And you know what? For me, it's easier because of the English language. So I know that I can come here with this CD, and I don't have to go through any contortions for, to explain to people. <laughs> I can't anyway, because I don't know what half the song is about. <laughs> but they can see You're serious? No, it's not true. There's no. only one there I really don't understand. Right. And then there'll be a song like Motherland, which I feel as though I understand fine until the last verse. I haven't got a clue what the last verse is. <laughs> and then there's the other factor, which is... Oh, it was a song of Dar Williams, and I can't remember which one it which one it was right now. But I sang it consistently for a number of years, and I had this long introduction. <laughs> and she heard the introduction, she said, "Oh, that's not what it's about at all." So, and it seemed to other people that the introduction made sense. So I had to laugh at myself. I mean, our perceptions are our perceptions. Um, she didn't mind how I introduced it. <laughs> I sang it. <laughs> Am I right in believing that your mother was Scottish and taught English? No, she taught... I, probably that was something she taught English to us kids. That's why we can speak it. Americans can. Yeah, she was born in Edinburgh. Yeah, and have you been up to trace your Scottish roots? Oh, you know, my aunt did once and sent them to me. And I don't remember at the moment, but they are available to me. I know that my middle name is Shandos, C-H-A-N-D-O-S, comes from uh, Scotland. And it's, I think it was some bastard duke who was our, I mean, literally, <laughs> our claim to royalty <laughs> in our family. Have you, have you not taken a huge amount of interest then, or to try to find a tartan or something like that? <laughs> no, you know, I think it exists. Um, that's not a bad idea. Hmm. No, I, I haven't. I haven't. 
Americans don't do much about about lineage, but it's not a bad idea because that's one of the reasons we're so shallow. No. I'm not shallow, but I think the American people in general, or rather the American quote culture, and the quote means it's questionable whether yeah. American culture is an oxymoron. <laughs> well, I always thought the Americans love the Scottish traditions, to be honest, but... Um, the Americans love the Scottish traditions? Oh, I think so. They love going up to Scotland to see all the traditional, the castles and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Oh, I see, I see, yes. Um, I realize you've never had any choice in the matter, but are you glad you were born when you were and lived in the times that you have? Oh, sure. I am. I mean, I, for years and years I've heard people say to me, oh, I wish I'd lived in the 60s. Oh, you know, I just missed everything. And although my feeling is, even during the dull times, and I, they were rather dull during Reagan and after, and they're only getting interesting again <laughs> now, which is sad. But that, yeah, that I was, in fact, part of the reason I'm sure that I had the success I had was that my inclinations politically are what they are. Mm. And that was the time. I mean, that was the time of King. I met King when I was 15. He was, I think, 25 when he'd begun his civil rights career. What's your one abiding memory of Martin Luther King then? Oh, I only think it's this one. Well, I have to just take the picture that comes to my mind and it's, uh, oddly enough, it is the day of the I Had a Dream. Yeah. I, I was not aware. I was standing quite close for a lot of that and I wasn't aware that he had written the whole speech when he started off with that speech and then abandoned it and just took off. So it was pretty, it was an electrifying day. And the other is just having dinner with him and his mates and listening to them laugh and joke. We didn't get to see that of King. Mm. I think he couldn't afford to joke in front of cameras. Um, he had to be the serious preacher. Did you share his sense of sort of doom as regards his own life? He knew. He, he was very undoom-like. I mean, that's probably why he spent a lot of time eating catfish and horsing around with his friends while he could. But he, you know, he, at a certain point he knew um, that he didn't have a chance against, well, basically against the U.S. government. M many people probably assume that the 60s was the decade you've enjoyed the most. How right would they be? Dead wrong. Um, I didn't really come into my own sense of myself and enjoyment and, you know, the word isn't as popular here as it is in the States, but the, the kind of therapy it took to to alleviate phobias and panic attacks and all that not awful stuff that I, I carried with me since I was young. I didn't really go, you know, take a task until starting about 15 years ago. And the extraordinary thing is that if you do that in earnest and are willing to go in and look whatever is causing those things, that one can change. And yeah. I, I think I really didn't believe that I'd ever change. So nobody knew about that part because I was pretty suave on stage from when I was young on. But that's gone now. So I get to, get, you know, I get to see the world with me... Um, as a part of it, instead of feeling separate from it. And it's a very different story. And I get to enjoy the touring way more than I ever dreamed was possible. But how often do you get nostalgic for the old days, and to what extent do you surround yourself with memorabilia? Oh, God. 
I don't get nostalgic for the old days. I think if I get maudlin, that's the kind of nostalgia I have, or I. Um, but it isn't that I. I mean, I've never gone to a '60s party in my life, and I don't <laughs> ever will. Because I, first of all, you know, it, too much is needed now. It, basically, well, everybody in the '60s, whoever was having a jolly time, you know, smoking dope and dancing and. and and, you know, getting naked and burning bras and business. I was running an institute for the study of nonviolence. I was like an old school mom, and I didn't do drugs. And and then and then I went to jail hmm. for draft resistance, and I was pretty awfully, dreadfully serious face value. And my fun I had uh, a bit like King, I guess, was more in private. Over the years, how have you viewed the extent to which you've been associated with Bob Dylan? As an advantage or a disadvantage? I'm sure it's both. I mean, I'm, I'm, there is something, if I look <coughs> subjectively at it, objectively, I can't remember which one's which, if I look from the outside at it, that there, there's something interesting about the whole time period and about the, the union, musically and otherwise, that we had. And I certainly give him all the credit that I think he's due for hmm. what he did for our generation of music. How, how different is your memory of him to the image the media have created for the public? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, each person has his own, his and her own myths about all of us. Um, and I'm not sure actually what, how would you describe it? Oh, goodness. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's so complicated. I've yeah, been... Um... It is complicated. So, but I know, I mean, I read somewhere that he and I lived together for eight years. <laughs> you know, we didn't by any long shot. So people have really built up huge myths around it. But I don't really care about any of that. I think that I got something from our friendship, and I got an enormous amount from his music. I mean, mm. I almost feel piggy about the fact that I had first shot at some of his songs. Can you tell us how you feel about the way he's been increasingly regarded as some kind of a god? No, I don't want to talk about all of that, really. Okay. Is there anyone who's had a bigger influence on your career? Well, I think if you took it in stages, at the beginning, oddly enough, um, the first folk music I ever heard was Harry Belafonte so, and then Odetta and Pete Seeger at the same time they made an immense impression on me at Pete because he did the things that he sang about I mean yeah. I, I was introduced early on to somebody whose life had the kind of meaning his did and, and political sense that his did and then he, and he sang about it and so that was the first really huge in the folk in folk music, this is after rhythm and blues. <laughs> and then, out of, I would say, out of all the songwriters, this, to me, nobody's ever compared with Dylan in the consistency of good songs. That people have one or two that are spectacular. Um, and then, you know, I think there are songwriters now who write consistently well. I think, for instance, some of Dar Williams' songs are pretty close to classic, like the um, February, her song February, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is, has all of the earmarks of something that'll last for a long, long time. The Indigo Girls' song Welcome Me, at the beginning it was like a, a new song in Jones' repertoire, and now it's, a, it's an oldie, and so it, it, they last. 
you, you explained earlier that you steered clear of drugs and alcohol. How, how hard was that, being in the music industry at that time? Well, it wasn't hard at all because I was a snob and I thought I was virtuous. Actually, I was just scared to death, and that's why I didn't do drugs. Hmm. <laughs> I was, a, you know, I, as it turns out, and I learned way later in my life, and the amount of control freak I had in me must have been such that I was afraid to lose any of it. Hmm. And nothing else, nothing else would explain not even wanting to smoke dope. Hmm. Which, by the way, was, I'm sure, a great disillusionment to my son when he found out his, that his mom hung out with all those 60s people but didn't get high. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that? I tried literally about three times. Oh. I tried again about three years ago, and it was ghastly. Really? For me, yeah. yeah. I've never done it, I have to say. Um, Woodstock. We didn't even run for president. Woodstock has long been regarded as the ultimate music festival. How highly did you rate it? Oh, I think you could say ultimate music festival. That works fine for me. Yeah? Yeah, and then I think now, um, I mean, I don't think a Woodstock will ever be repeated. So this is silly trying. But the, I would say that the what I've enjoyed maybe most in the last number of years of touring has been the outside festival. It all, I'm sure, in a sense, you know, have that have the Woodstock element. Probably because there's open seating. Very young people sit up front, and to my delight, in a lot of countries, know my music. That's a real, that's a real pleasure to me. Do you have like one outstanding memory of Woodstock that you could give us? Yeah, sitting in Joe Cocker's um, van in the pouring, it was pouring out, and that was like the nearest place of refuge. And having a some somebody with the organization kept popping his head in and saying, "You okay, Joan? You okay, Joan?" <laughs> it turned out there was a rumor that I was in labor, that I was very largely pregnant. Oh, right. And other people were having babies and stuff out there, and so mm. they thought I think the rumor got out that I was. You attended drama school, didn't you, in Boston? Oh, please, for about six hours. It was ever your intention to be an actress rather than a singer? No, you know, at the end of high school, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I let grades slip so drastically that I couldn't get into the school that it was sort of imagined I would go to. You know, the girls' school, East Coast, etc. And I, th I was scared again. I mean, it was like being afraid of commercialization. I was afraid of of meeting new people. I was afraid of going to a school. I ended up in, in Boston University Fine Arts, and I, and I won the drawing contest, and I started singing. I had nothing at all to do with theater, mm. and I never have until I recently did the, the um, Madame Zanzani in the circus. But you've been in a few films. But it's not acting. It was just being me. I mean, in, in, in yeah, I mean, we made, I think, three or four documentaries. So that's just me being serious, me. Doing the um, circus cabaret, I'm a French countess. So that's really my first attempt at acting, and, it, and it's, it's because it was just deliriously fun that I could do it. And I oh, that's good. As you explained earlier, you know, you've been very politically active over the years, a lot of protesting and campaigning and so on. What was it about you and your background which made you so passionate about such causes when so many people just don't bother? Mm. Well, I, 
those things I don't know that we ever really figure out for sure. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is living in Baghdad when I was 10 and reading Anne Frank. I'm sure that's not any wild coincidence that that right. have meaning to me in living in a country where people had basically nothing except for the top 3% who had everything and being exposed to that kind of poverty and illness and, and kids who couldn't get to doctors and so on and then reading I mean I was just floored by Anne Frank and that had started then when I was 10 continues did you go and visit her no, house I in Amsterdam? I haven't done that were there times when you really struggled to choose between you know campaigning protesting whatever over your music career and vice versa no not until I made the decision when I joined up with Mark Spector, mm. manager, about 13 years ago, and I had to say to myself, you have to put all of the politicking on the back burner if, mm. if I wanted to have a musical career, mm. which apparently I still did and do. So for a long period of time, with the exception of going to Sarajevo in the middle of the war, which I couldn't resist, I have really put it on on the back burner, but before that, there was never a question. The politics always came first. You were obviously you supported many very worthy causes. How, how concerned were you that being so prolific in that way may have diluted your impact? I never thought about it, and maybe it did, and maybe it didn't. We may never know. It just I did what I had to do from such an early age, and felt. I felt that it was um, the appropriate thing to do. Was Martin Luther King much of a mentor in, in politically for you? He had immense meaning in my life. Yeah? I still miss him. Was there any discussion that you had with him that sort of inspired you? Was it just a speech or anything like that? I think maybe the first time I heard him speak. And it mm. was a high, you know, group of high school kids. And I think 200 and some kids from all over the country used to meet in an area near Carmel with an annual do, and that the speaker that year was Martin Luther King. And so I was already acquainted with nonviolence and Gandhi through reading and through Quakerism. And then here was a man talking about and doing about what was actually happening as we spoke, and that was the, the bus boycott. How do you think he would have felt about the progress and changes that have been made since he was assassinated? Oh, he'd probably be glad he was assassinated. <laughs> I think, well, there's two answers to that. One is there, there are changes, positive changes, that we can never go back on. And so that a lot was accomplished in civil rights movements. Yeah, definitely. And I do think it's, I think it's possible and I think it was proven by Reagan to slip backwards and, and public consciousness and racism. And I think we've got ourselves in, the, in pretty bad shape at the moment. I've read that you experienced many threats yourself as a result of your protests and so forth. What was the most sinister or frightening? Well, I never had the wits to be frightened at the moment. I think probably when I was in Argentina and um, was going to march with the, the mothers of the disappeared. And I was with Perez Esquivel, you know him, he was the Nobel Prize winner right. a years back for his work in nonviolence in Argentina. And he right. came ashen-faced into his office where I was and said, please cancel your plans. 
to march, and a man had just opened his his trench coat and shown Esquivel guns oh. and made a threat. They don't they don't want any more publicity, namely meaning me. And so I, but I didn't I didn't feel fear at the moment. It was only when I later on thought, wow. So did any of these threats ever put you off? Ever actually stop you going ahead? Well, that one did. I mean, I did because, I mean, I'm sure for myself I would have done it, but that's really hardly fair when you're in somebody else's country and you get to leave and they don't. So that's why I don't. Uh, in fact, when I was down there, it was Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, and I wasn't allowed to sing in any of those places. And so we would do some illicit singing, but if one person said, please don't, because of, you know, somebody would get hurt, then I wouldn't do it. When you were jailed, what was the kind of reaction to you from the other prisoners and perhaps even the prison staff? <laughs> the prison staff was very funny. They really didn't know what to do with any of us. The first time there were 30 of us and the second time there were 60. And the, quote, regulars, we called them, um, were set out to, to be very annoyed by us. But any of us who was willing to hang out with them long enough to make a conversation, it began to change the dynamics in the prison, which was wonderful. And also, they taught me how to dance. <laughs> so we, we developed a special relationship. Do you feel that the whole experience of being jailed was just pointless in your respect? Oh, heavens no. Not at all. You mean, you mean result-oriented? Yeah, I mean, really, what was the point in shutting you away? Because it wasn't going to change you, was it? Oh, it's, I think it was... Um, to try and get us out of the way because yeah. what we were saying made too much sense but it didn't you see I mean we had a strike for instance we had a hunger strike while we were in jail and I was put in solitary confinement which was kind of a joke there but I had with me hard boiled eggs <laughs> and a bunch of contraband and a radio and I turned the radio on and here I'm hearing um, on the news about our strike so um you know, the prisons have the greatest grapevine anywhere mm. in the world, except, I suppose, countries where everything's banned, mm. and then everything goes by grapevine. Did you ever take a stance which you now acknowledge to be wrong or misguided? I think there probably a couple of times when, when I thought, oh, well, that was rather silly, or I hadn't thought it through but for the most part, because it was all based on nonviolence, everything mm. I did. Mm. That limits, that already limits the numbers of things. Absolutely, yeah. I was pretty well guided. To what extent has your involvement in fighting for justice and supporting causes and so forth lessened with the passing years, and why would that be? I think that during the years that I was concentrating on music and on inner work, as I said, the timing was good because it was a kind of an in-the-meantime time. Um, and I don't think now that it's lessened. I think the fervor is probably less and that that's a healthy thing because now I, I feel it's more my choice what I get involved in than a reaction, the knee-jerk reaction. But how often do you still get stirred by situations? Oh, I get stirred daily. I just have to be careful what I read, and I barely watch television. It's much too bloody stirring right now. But do you think at all that the world is a better place in any respect? 
than when you started campaigning? And at the moment, it's pretty awful. I think some things changed and will never change back. Um, and some of that, although it certainly be contended, have to do with civil rights and human rights. The human rights, what's changed for the better is that they exist to speak about. That human rights violations didn't matter up until, I guess, 1950-something. They began to be uttered at all. And so people could, representatives from nations would meet each other and chat at length while people were being clubbed to death in their prisons. And now at least we know to some degree what's going on in those prisons. We have to find out what's going on in Guantanamo Bay because I'm pretty sure it's pretty awful. Um, but that's how difficult it is to get the word out. But, I mean, as you explained earlier, you spent a certain amount of time as a child in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Has that made you extra sensitive to, to the situations we've had with them? Yes, it has. Can you explain? There isn't much to explain. There's somebody's home for a while, and you know it's, it's been bombed to bits. Plus, has suffered through the years of dictatorships. When, when I was there, it was some region, it was still under English control. Hmm. So things were sort of things were all underground and fairly mild on the at face value, and I wasn't aware of much. Being only ten, um, but I know that the years under Saddam were pretty gruesome. I also know that we, as the United States administration, have supported him, hmm. which makes very few radio and television stations in the states will mention that when they talk about Saddam gassing the Kurds, mentioned that we were with him on that, <laughs> you know. Have you still got friends out there? Have you still got... No, not for, no, it's too long ago, but, but it, 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 yeah, it's a strong feeling, because there were, it's because it, it was a home once. I mean, people talking about the situation there now as being another Vietnam, is that how you view it? I'm more frightened now um, about the state of the world and what could happen than I ever was in the 60s. And it's because I see a blindness in the American people, um, and I'm sure to a certain degree here, but not as large degree. I mean, we saw that from mm. um, that the American public is overwhelmed by this administration, which I think is evil. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's any other way to say it. Mm. It doesn't mean that the people in it are all evil, but the end result of the combination of them has produced terrible things. Is there a good alternative in the States at the moment, though? Oh, heavens, I don't know. But for the first time in my life, I really would vote for anybody who would yeah. Bush. Really. Yeah. I mean, and I will say that. And yeah. that's a big deal for me because I don't put much stock in mm. conventional politics. Which political leaders have impressed and disturbed you the most? <laughs> impressed and disturbed? Um, well, I, it's hard for me to get impressed by them, I must say. But everyone is so impressed by Mandela, and I know you've met oh, him. you mean worldwide? Yeah. Absolutely. Mandela and Havel. Oh, it's a, it's a no-brainer for me. Both extraordinary state people, and um, it's just a pity that we can't, others can't learn more from them. And I think Havel has been more forced into situations because of the tininess of their state, of uh, their country, that he, that he personally was not happy in. But Mandela, 
He's one tough cookie. Have you ever fancied going into politics yourself? Not that kind. <laughs> of any kind? Well, you know, the politics, you couldn't be any more a political being than King or Gandhi, you know. And those hmm. are my role models. Maybe we know how you felt about turning 60 a couple of years ago? Ever since 30, things have gotten better and easier. When somebody told me that before I was 30, I thought they were lying. Because I was really very unhappy then about getting older. And then all of a sudden, something kind of switched. And I realized that I felt better, healthier, and happier as the decades went along. And I feel now, after years of meditation and um, exposing myself to the the Buddhist types around me, um, insight meditation, that I would like to be prepared for old age and for death. Hmm. And that's, a, that's an important goal for me. In intelligent societies, and there aren't very many, but I would certainly say the Tibetans start preparing for that when they're free. Hmm. You know, and we just avoid it. In Western cultures, we just avoid it as though it didn't exist. And then we treat aging people as though they didn't exist. So I would say I am now a proud elder. And has that had any effect on your attitude towards work and the amount of time you devote to it? Well, apparently not, because I keep... Um, I mean, I know I have a choice. I certainly have a choice. I don't mm. have to be working. But the voice goes on. Well, hell, you know, I'll do another tour. And then at the end of the tour, I think, why am I quitting this tour? It just got really fun. <laughs> it just got to where we knew what we were doing. So it seems as though um, after the, the hiring of Mark and, you know, the freshening of my music and a lot of inner work made me healthier and happier, I seem to have very much of a second or third wind. What about the things you do away from work? Have they changed over the decades? There's just, there's just more of them. There's a lot of poetry writing. There's a lot of hanging out with my son and his wife. And I didn't really get the value of that until, you know, the last ten years or so. I'm on a lot of output. I'd like to read a little more, but it's hard for me. My tendency is always to go and do something or draw something, write yeah. something. But you've published two volumes of autobiography. Yeah, I'm sure there's a third. <laughs> is there more to come? And is there much about yourself that you will never reveal? There are some things, of course, I never will reveal. There's some things I didn't know when I wrote the last book, and I'm sure they'll come out at some point. Why are there areas that you won't discuss? I suppose any area I wouldn't discuss would be solely because there were people I wouldn't want to hurt. You, you earlier admitted to having had therapy. How, how hard is I it? I admit. I'm very proud of it. Admit always sort of conjures up some sort of shame. But how hard is it to trust talking to effectively a stranger, however professional, when you and many of the other people in your life story are well known? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I've spoken with you. Um, I've done it for many years, and I pretty much have an invisible boundary things I won't say. I mean, you're aware of that. And um, I don't talk to strangers. <laughs> to what extent do you feel your professional life has affected your personal life over the years? 
Well, they've been intertwined for way longer than they were not intertwined. So there's not really a way for me to answer them. And from 18 on. May we know how much you see of your son and, and you know, even his father these days, what, are they, what they're up to? His father I don't know much about except that he gives the best, most intelligent speeches about the state of the world at the moment of anybody. If I had one person to choose to listen to, it would be David. That's been consistent in him. And my son, I spend as much time with as I can. And what does he do now? He plays African drums, makes African drums, plays with Africans. (laughs) And um, I'm just proud to have uh, a child with a heart like that. Um, Would you you like to have had more children? Oh, love to have, yes. Is it a regret at all? I don't spend a lot of time getting it, though. I mean, you know, what point would it be? May we know if you're sharing your life or home with anyone at the moment? Um, lots of relatives and friends. I live in a compound. So there's no one special at the moment? No, they're all special. Um, how, how satisfied are you with your life so far, though? Oh, um, I put that in about the 95 percentile. Oh, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, not, it is. <laughs> not many people can say that. What would you like to achieve in years to come? Moderate peace of mind. How do you want to be remembered by people after you've gone? Oh, I don't know. It's too complicated. I would like now to be recognized for what I do now, which is, has begun happening as of the last ten years. Is the one song that you've written or sung that sums up your life best? No. No. No, there isn't. There are too many of them.